that we have a mutual obligation, a mutual obligation. We who are strong have an obligation, there's the word, to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us, each of us, note that phrase, each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, to build him up. There's the bottom line go, to build up. In verse 1, the emphasis is on the obligation of the strong to bear with the weak. In other words, the more mature brother or sister is to take the lead in showing grace when it comes to disputes over non-essential issues. And if you're familiar with chapter 14, you know that's what Paul has been talking about. How to live together, how to deal with each other when you have these secondary or gray area issues where there's not a specific command from the Lord or a specific word in God's book about what to do about that. So that's what Paul has been talking about. So he begins chapter 15, although it wasn't beginning chapter 15 for Paul. The chapters, as we all know, were added later. But Paul reminds, you know, when you come to these issues, these secondary issues, the strong should take the lead in uh, living together in grace and understanding and patience with one another. So the strong Bearing with the weak. But in verse 2, I believe the obligation is made mutual because it says, let each of us, each of us, strong and weak, let each of us please his neighbor for his good with what goal? The goal being to build him up. Now, my take on that, when 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 I say that, I'm deviating from most commentators here. But each of us is each of us, strong Weak, in between, whatever. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. So there's the mutual obligation. I believe that both the strong and the weak, both the spiritually mature and the spiritually less mature, are called to please his neighbor for his good, for his good, with the goal being to build him up. Now, let's make a quick note of this, about this. This is not a call to live as a man pleaser when it tells us to please each other. This is not a, a, uh, uh, a, a mandate or a, an instruction to, to live as a, what in other places of Scripture is known as a man pleaser, someone who uh, is so worried about what everybody thinks and, and instead of what God thinks. And their goal is to please people over pleasing God. But the context here is not talking about that. In, in, in other contexts, man-pleasing, people-pleasing is a negative. Okay, but here it's the positive type of pleasing others that results in their edification. That's the key. Remember the goal, to build them up. Please others... But it doesn't stop there. Please others to build them up. In other words, pleasing others is not the end goal, as it is with people pleasers. That's not the end goal. Building them up is the end goal, which involves putting others first and considering others more important than ourselves as we recited together in Philippians 2.3 in our verse of the month. It involves not being self-centered, but taking a deep interest in the spiritual well-being of other members of our church family. And our church family, by God's grace alone, 
is packed with people like that. Are we thankful or what? Bottom line, as members of the body of Christ, we have a mutual obligation to do what helps and encourages and edifies others and forget about always pleasing ourselves in a selfish way. So the clarification here, uh, as opposed to being a man pleaser in a negative sense, might be this. There is joy in pleasing others and seeing them built up. And that should be something that pleases us. Okay, you with me? So when the issue is legitimately debatable, okay, so it wouldn't be an issue like the deity of Christ. That would not be a debatable issue. Uh, Salvation by grace alone would not be a debatable issue. But in a debatable issue, as Paul has been talking about in the previous chapter, with no clear scriptural mandate, we should live lives that promote the joy of our brothers and sisters rather than squelching it. We should build up with acceptance and forbearing and understanding and patience rather than tear down with criticism and judgmentalism. As verse 19 states in the previous chapter, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. So there's the mutual obligation. Secondly, in verse 3, we have a perfect illustration. And when I say perfect, I mean that literally. Because what's our illustration? Jesus. Jesus. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So when I say a perfect illustration, I'm speaking literally here in this context. It's none other than Jesus, our perfect example of how to put others first. He put us first by laying down his life for us. He put us first by dying for our sins. He put us first by bearing God's wrath as our substitute, taking away the penalty and the punishment and the eternal wrath that we so richly deserved because of our sin. If we want to be Christians who live in harmony, we must always look to Jesus. We must fix our eyes on Christ. We must stay focused on the cross where the ultimate reproach or insults of God, our sins fell on him. When we constantly behold Christ, we are changed. Isn't that what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18? You know. With unveiled face, we are beholding Jesus, and we are transformed from glory to glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As we behold Jesus, as we fix our eyes on Him, we are changed. When we constantly behold Christ, God transforms us, and we live together better. We live together better. Hasn't it been a joy to watch that happen over the 27-plus years we've been together? To, To grow in living together better. Praise the Lord. James Montgomery Boyce puts it like this, quote, Our calling is to be like Jesus Christ, who endured the worst men could do to him in order to please his Father, and win our salvation. Since that is our high calling, 
we should be able to overlook the many ways in which other Christians differ from us and get on with the task of building them up and then striving to grow together with them in the Christian life. Amen. Then thirdly, in verse 4, we have a divine specification, a divine specification. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That divine specification, namely, is God's Word. God's Word, the Bible, the Scriptures, our divine instruction, the Spirit-inspired specifications from God, telling us specifically what Christ has done for us in the Gospel and instructions on how we should live when our lives have been changed by that gospel. Look at the end of verse 4. When we receive God's word with joyful obedience, we receive endurance and encouragement that results in hope. And in this instance, in this particular context, I don't think the word hope is referring to the hope of heaven, which is our blessed hope which is a great blessing that we all have. But in this context, I don't think it's talking about the future. The emphasis here in Romans 15 is not future. Why is that? Well, think about it. We won't need endurance and encouragement in heaven. Will we? Think, I mean, ponder, that's a good ponderer, okay? But in heaven, man, we're there. We've arrived. The evil age is over. This is done. We're with Jesus. We're with all the redeemed saints of God. The, the church triumphant. We're there. It's, it's, it's over. So I believe it's talking about hope for the here and now in this context. Endurance and encouragement to live together in harmony for our good and God's glory. In other words, when we live according to the Scriptures, when we live according to the divine specifications that God has given us, we have hope that we can live together now in this life like God wants us to. It's like, a, like an early taste of heaven, a foretaste of glory divine, as the great hymn writer has said. What a great prospect. What a hope. It's a hope for now, for living together now. When we live by the Scriptures, we can live together properly now for the glory of God and the good of this local church. Fourthly, in verses 5 and 6, we have an apostolic supplication. In verses 5 and 6, Paul just breaks out in prayer. Don't you love this? Paul's always doing this. He just, he just breaks out and he begins to pray for the Romans. And because the Holy Spirit inspired him to write it down, it's also a prayer for us right now. Right now. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with, with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, when you don't know what to pray for your church family, there you go. There you go. Just read those two verses. Just pray those two verses every week, every day. For your elders, for your church family, for your fellow church members. There's a great, great, great prayer. Paul prays 
that God would grant to his people the gift of harmony and unity. So what's that telling us? That's telling us that any harmony and unity and oneness that we share here on this planet is ultimately a what? A gift. A gift. That ties right into grace alone. It's ultimately a gift. What do you have that you did not receive? Paul asked the Corinthians in his first letter. What do you have that you did not receive? If we have any unity, if we have any harmony, if we have any of those things that we read every Sunday last month in Philippians 2, 1 and 2, any consolation in love, any, any unity in the spirit in those things. And I didn't do a good job of memorizing that right now. And I'm revealing that to you. But they're gifts. They're gifts. They're gifts of grace alone. Our unity is ultimately a gift. As we work out our oneness, Philippians 2.12, right? As we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. As we work out our oneness, our common salvation, by doing the things mentioned in this text and throughout the Word of God. God works in us, Philippians 2.13, for it's God who is at work in you, both the will and the work for his good pleasure. You think it's God's will for us to be at one? You think it's God's will for us to be unified? Well, yes, it's very clear from Scripture, and he's working that in us, and we're called to work it out by living together as flesh and blood people, saved by the grace of God. As we work out our oneness by obedience to Scripture, by doing the things that he instructs us to do as the people of God living together in this sin-cursed earth, God works in us to grant us practical unity. And he gets the glory. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? As Thomas Schreiner writes, quote, Believers should certainly strive for unity, but ultimately it is a gift of God and not human attainment. And that connects right into what Brother Ron was telling us about grace alone. What do you have? In this case, unity. What unity do you, do you have that you did not receive? And this, but beloved, let's think about it. We've talked about this before. I don't have time to elaborate here in this context today. But this is a unity in, a, in the midst of diversity, Right? which makes it all the more beautiful. I mean, look around the diverse people that we have, okay? And I, I, I'm not talking necessarily about diversity on the outside that the world emphasizes. I'm talking about diversity as individual human beings created in the image of God. So we're not t- talking here about groupthink among a bunch of robotic clones, but individual sinners saved and bound together by the grace of God, loving each other and serving each other in the midst of our differing opinions over secondary and non-salvific issues. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? Finally, number five, And when I say finally, I'm saying finally as a part of the first half of this message. We have a foundational motivation 
in verse 7, a foundational motivation. Therefore, wel- uh, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, <laughs> oh, Paul, that's usually where he goes, isn't it? That's where he always heads. That's, that's the path he's always on. The glory of God, our last solo. That'll be fifth Sunday with elder number five, which will be me. I'm number five, okay? He lays out exhortations for God's people. All of his letters are like this, pretty much. He lays out exhortations inspired by the Holy Spirit for the people of God and then makes a beeline for the ultimate purpose of every human being. The glory of God. This is where the Holy Spirit always wants us to go. Always. At the end of every road of instruction, no matter what the subject may be, at the end of that road is the glory of God. This is how he wants us to live in our relationships with others, as in all things. For the glory of God. And man, we could talk so much more about that. But I always think of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And in this context, your good works of living together in harmony. And glorify your Father in heaven. What are some ways this fleshes out? Well, that brings us to our next point. If you're using your sermon sheet, uh, Roman number number three, glorifying God as church members. Glorifying God as church members. Let's start a quick list of ways to be a God-glorifying church member. Ways to be a God-glorifying church member. Or we might could say uh, ways to be a better covenant member. Okay. Number one, God is glorified when I choose to be a functioning member. God is glorified when I choose to be a functioning member. In the 1980s, most of you know, uh, some of our uh, recent members or visitors probably may not know this, but most of you know that it's been around any time, know that in the 1980s, gosh, 1980s, 40 years ago, God. In the 1980s, I was the youth pastor of a church that had 2,800 members, 2,800 members, okay? To, to give you a comparison, you know, I, I never have been a numbers man, okay? So I couldn't tell you how many members we have. I know we have about 75 to 80 families. Uh, some of the kids of those families are members, some are not. Uh, so I'm guessing we have maybe 150 members. So 150 members versus to 2,800 members. Wow. But on a good Sunday, on a good Sunday at that church, 800 were present. 800. 800 out of 2,800. In other words, you know, that would be like, uh, to keep the comparison, uh, that would be like uh, 50 of us being here. Maybe not that much, if I did my math right. Okay. In other words, 2,000 people were pretty much non-functioning members. Their, their name was on a list. Their name was on a roll. And many of them thought they was going to heaven. 
But they were never there. They were never there. Over 70% non-functioning members. Seven out of ten people non-functioning members. See that? That would be only 35 of you would be here if you had the same ratio. If we have 150 members, 35 would be here every Sunday. Isn't that pathetic? Isn't that pitiful? Aren't you thankful that's not the way it is here? Approximately two out of every three people on that church roll were not there. They were non-functioning members. And when I compare RCC to that church, I say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Bless your name for a church where the vast majority of members are functioning as serious and committed members. We are hugely blessed in this place. So I'm a, I'm a functioning biblical church member. Let me just throw out some things real quick that make a functioning church member because it's more than just being here, right? It's more than just being here. Being here is one thing. That's, that's a good place to start, okay? But, I, but I'm a functioning biblical church member when, I, when I'm a cheerful giver. And, and I'm not talking about just money. A cheerful giver of time. A cheerful giver of talents. A cheerful giver of your gifts that God has gifted you with. I'm a functioning church member when I serve others because I consider them more important than myself. I I don't serve out of an obligation or out of duty. I I serve because I, I, I seriously, genuinely think my brothers and sisters are more important than I am. I'm a functioning biblical church member when I weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We're always having opportunities to do that on both sides of that coin. Are we doing it? When one member suffers, I suffer with them. When another member is honored, I rejoice with them. I'm a functioning church member when I'm involved in body life beyond the two hours on Sunday morning. I'm a functioning church member when I truly, deeply enjoy being with the members of my church family. I really enjoy their company. I enjoy being around them. I enjoy hearing about what God is doing in their lives. I'm involved in their lives. So God is glorified when I choose to be a functioning member. Secondly, God is glorified, and this list won't even come near to being a completed list. You know the rule at RCC, there's no such thing as an exhaustive list, okay? So I'm just getting you started to be thinking about these things on, covenant, on this Covenant Sunday 2021. Secondly, God is glorified when I seek to be an instrument of unity in the church. When I seek, actively seek, to be an instrument of unity in the church. This is the person who recognizes that we are all sinners. We're all sinners. Okay? You know, I'll, I'll begin uh, a, a new set of sessions with a potential married couple this afternoon. Megan and Nathan can't wait. And I'll, I'm going to go ahead and tell you one of the things I'm going to say to you that I said to every couple that's been married under the banner of this church and as as a part of this ministry here is this. 
I'm sure you've got a lot of things in common, but one thing we know for sure that you have in common is that you're both marrying a sinner. You're both marrying a sinner. Okay. Now, as covenant members, which is not exactly like marriage, but you could put it in the same category. We stand up and we make vows. We make vows to one another. But the one thing we all have in common is we're joining with other sinners. We're joining with other sinners, every one of us. And the functioning church member that glorifies God is the one that recognizes that and never forgets that. That we all still, even though saved, still desperately need Jesus. We still desperately need the gospel, even after we're born again. Not a single one of us have arrived at perfection, and not a single one of us ever will on this planet. Therefore, we relate to one another with grace. With grace. Just the way Jesus related to each one of us. So, I'm a unifying church member when I'm not a source of gossip or, or dissension or division. I'm a unifying church member when I always think the best of others. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. No matter what somebody may be telling me, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt until we sit down together. I'm a unifying church member when I'm quick to hear. And slow to speak. Quick to hear, slow to speak. I'm a unifying church member when I'm quick to forgive and always ready to reconcile because that's the heart of the gospel. And I'm a gospel-dominated person. I'm a unifying church member when I am an encourager. I'm an encourager. I want to strive to know, let, not let any discouraging words come out of my mouth. We could go on with that. Number three, God is glorified when my commitment to membership is not about my preferences and desires. Let me say that again. That's a biggie. Many people join churches, not here, but they join churches and they, they join one. What's in it for me? What will I get from this? Nah, God is glorified when my commitment to membership is not about my preferences and desires. In other words, I'm growing and being others focused and not self-serving. I remember that Jesus went to the cross for me so I can deal with matters that aren't my preference or my style. I'm an others-focused church member when I recognize that the body as a whole is much more important than my individual wants and or needs. When I recognize that the body as a whole is much more important than my individual wants and or needs. I'm others-focused when I make my personal preferences secondary to the overall good of the body. I'm an others-focused member when I remember Paul's inspired words in 1 Corinthians 13 that biblical love, listen, does not 
insist on its own way. Biblical love does not insist on its own way. I'm another focused, others-focused member when I am decreasing and Jesus is increasing in my life. When I am decreasing and Jesus is increasing. I'm another focused member when I remember and strive to live out the words of King Jesus. If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. May God help us. Fourth, I got a couple more I want to mention to you today to get you started on this list. God is glorified when I spend time praying for other members. When I spend time praying for other members. This is the person who loves bringing his or her church, fellow church members to the throne of grace. They love it. So I'm an intercessory church member when I'm intentional. I'm intentional about praying for members of my church family. I'm an intercessory church member when I'm diligent in praying for members of my church family. Both intentional, I'm going to do it, and diligent, I'm consistent. I'm an intercessory church member when I make a habit of asking my brothers and sisters how I can pray for them. And finally, I'm an intercessory church member when I don't just say I will pray for them. I actually pray for them. Gosh, how often have I been guilty of saying, I'll pray for that, and then I go out and forget about it. Oh, God, help me do better. Help me do better. Fifth thing I want to mention under this, God is glorified when I see my mutual life with fellow members as a gift of God's grace. God is glorified in my life as a covenant church member when I see my mutual life with others in that church as a gift of God's grace. This is the person who is truly thankful to have a church family. It's not a nonchalant, take-it-or-leave-it mindset when it comes to church and his or her involvement in body life. Church has not just been tacked on to everything else in their overcrowded, over-busy life. This person is definitely not a SMO, Sunday morning only, SMO. I've used this quote on Covenant Sunday before. I'm going to use it again today because it's one of my favorites. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together wrote this. And I'm not, I'm not sure if he wrote this when he was in jail or not. He may have, I can't remember if he wrote this after his fellowship was taken away from the church or what. But, but here's what he said. It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. In other words, we take it for granted. We have this gift every Sunday. We have this gift every Wednesday. We have this gift when we are experiencing mountaintops together. We have this gift when we're walking through valleys together. But we have this gift so often and so abundantly with we tend to take it for granted. That's the way our fleshly, sinful nature is wired. We just take it for granted. What if it's taken away one day? What if it's taken away? 
God forbid that that would ever happen. But every now and then you see signs of that, don't you? There, you saw signs of that out in California, didn't you? Fortunately, it didn't happen now. But let's not take it for granted. Bonhoeffer goes on. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace. Grace alone, Brother Ron. Grace alone. There we go. A gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us. That the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. Amen. So I have the proper view of my mutual life with my church family. When I consistently express my gratitude to God for my church family. I, I, I know I probably missed a day now and then, but there's not too many days that go by when I'm not thanking God for you. And I, I need to thank God for you more than once a day. I have the proper view of my mutual life when I regularly thank God for allowing me to be a member of my church family. I'm thinking properly about church membership when I absolutely refuse, refuse, I absolutely refuse to take my church family for granted. Total refusal. Not going there. Never going there. I will not take this church family for granted. Ever. I have the proper view of my mutual life when I want to be with them beyond the two hours on Sunday morning. And when I consider my membership in this church family as one of the most cherished blessings of my life. So let's wrap it up. Let's consider, in conclusion, the significance of covenant membership. Several years ago, I read a book by Jason Stellman entitled Dual, Dual Citizens. Dual Citizens. And that title should tell you where he's going, right? We're citizens in two worlds, right? And one's more important than the other. We're citizens of America. I'm thankful for that. But I'm also citizens in the kingdom of heaven. I'm more thankful for that. Here's what he said. In his Corinthians correspondence, Paul described the barring of an unrepentant brother from fellowship in the church as delivering him over to Satan. That's in 1 Corinthians 5. Um, remember that was the guy that was sleeping with his uh, stepmother and Paul couldn't believe that the Corinthians were doing nothing about it. And he's telling him, you need to get church discipline going here. This guy needs to be delivered over to Satan. He needs to be excommunicated. He needs to be put out of the church. Remove the leaven. And then Stelman goes on. Apparently, here, here's, here's the point he's making. Apparently, if excluding someone from corporate worship was such a grave step for the apostle... The church and its ordained ministry of word and sacrament are more important and their absence more tragic than is usually admitted in contemporary circles. What is he saying there? He's saying that to most professing Christians, at least in America, not being in church is not a big deal for most people. It's just not a big deal. 
Being a member, being a covenant, committed, functioning member is just not a big deal. Hey, I'm in the universal church. I'm saved. Jesus is, is going to take me to heaven. And so I'm good. I'm, I'm good. That's probably the dominant thinking in America. But if kicking, what Stelman is saying is if kicking somebody or if excommunicating, bad phrase, don't like that phrase. If excommunicating somebody from church is equal to delivering them over to Satan, that's a big deal. So the opposite side of that is how much of a blessing is being part of a church? If not being a part of it is so bad, being a part of it is so wonderful. But most Christians in America do not think that way. We are individualists at heart. We're good. We're good. Me and Jesus. Me and Jesus and my internet preacher. We're good. That's dangerous ground. That's dangerous ground. I pray that none of you ever get there. Stelman goes on, a simple inference from this passage is that if expulsion from the means of grace is so precarious, then participation in the means of grace should be considered deeply beneficial. Or to put the matter differently, belonging to the church ought to be thought of as being every bit as much of a blessing as being thrown out is a curse. You got that? If being thrown out is a curse, then being a part of is a tremendous blessing. Is that the way you think? Is that the way you think about your church membership and your church family? Here we see what Stelman is getting at is the antithesis of the blessing and curse motif. Okay? The blessing and curse. And I'm thinking of the cross, you know. One of the greatest Old Testament blessings was to have the face of God shine upon you. And when Jesus was on the cross, what happened? God turned his face away. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the lights went out. It was total darkness. Blessing, curse. The blessing of God's face shining on you. The curse of having God's face turned away. Being excommunicated from church is a curse, delivered over to Satan. Being united to a church body is a blessing. So not only is local church membership designed by God to be a blessing to the individual members, but it also has another design. And before we conclude today, hang with me now. Let's think together about this. As I've already said, as Christians, we, while we are citizens of America... We are not primarily citizens of any human nation, but citizens of heaven, according to Philippians 3.20. We have a dual citizenship, a double citizenship. But we are first and foremost citizens of America. We are, I mean, citizens, we are not first and foremost citizens of America. We are first and foremost citizens of God's kingdom. We are aliens and exiles in our beloved America. As much as we are thankful to be living here above any other country, we don't belong here. We don't belong here. This is not our home. We're just passing through. And as we thank God for his kind 
and sweet providence that has made us Americans, may we never forget who we ultimately are, citizens of heaven. Now you're saying, Butch, what what has this got to do with covenant church membership? Well, let me try to tell you. With the truth of our dual citizenship in mind, with our most important citizenship being in heaven, here's one of the basic reasons why I think covenant membership in a local church is so important. Because Hear me now. It's the way we flesh out in practical, real-life terms our citizenship in heaven. Consider the following thoughts real quick. Covenant membership in a local church takes me beyond simply saying, oh yeah, I'm a member of the universal church. It makes citizenship in the kingdom of heaven more than just some lofty theological term. It puts roots to my membership in the body of Christ and makes it really mean something in this temporary flesh and blood life. It takes away the drift mentality that exists among so many American evangelicals who are just content to drift around from one church to another or one parachurch ministry to another or one radio or TV preacher to another. Covenant membership gives me roots in a defined, tangible, numbered, specific body of believers and makes citizenship in heaven actually means something. Secondly, covenant membership gives me a definite number of flesh and blood people to whom I'm accountable and with whom I engage in mutual submission. The Bible tells us that we are to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5.21. Covenant membership in a local church allows me to really do that. How does somebody who just stays at home and watches TV or watches the internet, how do they do that? How do they submit to other people out of reverence for Christ? They don't. They don't. Covenant membership allows me to do that. Allows me to actually obey the scriptures. When covenant membership in a local church is taken seriously, the question for us is not, what church do you attend? Or where do you go to church? No, the proper question for us is, to what church do you belong? To what church do you belong? And I joyfully belong here. I boastfully belong here. I gladly belong here. This is where I belong. This is how I flesh out my citizenship in heaven. Thirdly, covenant membership puts flesh to my confession as G- in Jesus as Lord. This links re- right to our salvation, right? If you confess Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. So how, how's that connection? Well, since Jesus is not here physically to exercise his lordship over the church, Ephesians 4 tells us that he has given the church pastors to lead and equip the saints. Acts 20.28 says that the Holy Spirit, who is co-equal with Jesus, has given the church elders to provide oversight. And Hebrews 13.17 says that the elders, that that we are to submit to this God-ordained leadership. Covenant church membership allows me the joy and privilege of living out my confession 
of King Jesus' lordship over my life in terms of a submissive relationship to people Jesus himself has given to churches to lead the flock as under-shepherds in his place. So listen, let's be very clear about this. To have no commitment to a local church is to ignore what Christ has provided for his church. And basically to say that you know better how to live out the Christian life in your own non-committal, individualistic sort of way. Finally, covenant membership recognizes the local church as what God designed it to be. An embassy of the kingdom of heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors for our king. Just like the U.S. has embassies in foreign countries where the ambassadors for the U.S. live, the kingdom of heaven has embassies on planet earth, which is a country foreign to heaven where the ambassadors for Christ live, namely local churches. Yes, and I'm not ashamed to say that I'll live here. Oh, yeah, my personal address is 1811 Walker Road. But at the same time, I live here. Not in this building. In and with you. I live with you. Okay? I hope you're okay with that. Because I love it. So, for me, the bottom line is gratitude to God for placing me in this local body of believers. I'm very, very thankful to be in covenant relationship with every single member of Rockdale Community Church. It's a true joy to be a member of this local church. I'm very, very thankful to be identified with the members of RCC as God's people in a real, solid, official way, beyond just my saying, almost as an afterthought, that I'm identified with you simply because I'm a Christian. Now, let's not be mistaken. I am identified with every believer in this room because I'm a Christian. But that would be true if I were talking about believers in China, who I probably won't see before I get to heaven. But the commitment of my covenant membership at RCC shouts loudly and clearly, I'm glad and I'm thankful that I'm a part of this defined structured, objective, numbered, specific group of people known as Rockdale Community Church. I'm very, very thankful for the accountability that comes with covenant membership. I'm glad that I'm not a solitary pilgrim traveling alone on the road to the heavenly country. I'm happy to submit to my fellow elders, and I thank God for the spiritual oversight that they provide for my life. I'm very, very thankful that I can say in the spirit of King David in Psalm 16:3, as for the members of RCC, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I pray with all my heart that every member of RCC can say that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this church family. Thank you for King Jesus. Thank you for the church. Help us to be it. Help us to be the church, starting with our confession of you as Lord and then our mutual desire to live together for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.